0: In 68, I think, if you're using the Blue Bibles uh, here at the church, um, R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, just passed away, said that Acts chapter 10 is one of the most important chapters in the entire New Testament, not just the book of Acts, but the entire New Testament, because uh, this is an extremely important moment in redemptive history where a whole new epic of of God's redemptive activity, is on display. The point Sproul is making is the one that we heard in our reading this morning from uh, that, that James did uh, from from Colossians, where, where Paul talks about a mystery being revealed, uh, a mystery that has from age upon age and generation after generation been hidden, but now is being revealed. And this is the chapter where that is revealed. Uh, that a people who were unclean, they were outside the covenant with Moses, outside the covenant with Abraham, uh, people that were outside the scope, it would seem, of God's lodge, so They were strangers of the covenant. They had no access. They were defiled. They were unclean. They were without hope of any kind, have now come into the people of God. And this is the place where that happens. So follow along as I read we're reading. Uh, verses 1 to 9, kind of doing a donut today. Uh, next week we'll get to Peter's vision in the, in the middle, but we're today focusing on, on on one person in particular, Cornelius. So verses 1 to 9 and then the second half of 23 to 48. Here now the reading of God's word. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Now move your eyes to the next page, the second half of verse 23. The next day he, as Peter, rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him, and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And he talked with him and he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit one of another nation. But God has shown me that I shall not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house, and at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore... We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is accountable to him. And for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John had proclaimed. Now how God granted uh, Jesus of Nazareth with Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. You, well, at the, uh, at the end of chapter 9 last week, there was a clue that something big was about to happen. Of course, it doesn't get much bigger than resurrection. Dorcas was re- was raised She was resurrected, if you will, by the power of Jesus. But then we're told that Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Uh, uh, Tanner's work, of course, involves tanning the hides of animals. Uh, uh, That necessitates touching dead animals. Uh, that, that means that Simon probably didn't have an office to go to, maybe like you do to do your work, but it's... It's, it's there at the house. It's an extension on the home. And so carcasses, of course, are hanging from the ceiling and touching any of these would be taboo for a pious Jew like Peter. So you can almost imagine him going in the house and kind of walking around these things. Kind of a funny scene because in all probability, Simon is a Gentile. He's someone unclean. And yet here is Peter as uh, Pastor Sean said, maybe that's why in verse 9 uh, we find Simon up on the roof getting some air because uh, this is a new experience for him. And the clues continue here in chapter 10. It was one thing for a Jew To welcome a Gentile into his home, it was quite another to go into the home of a Gentile as a Jew. Because entering the home of a Gentile rendered a Jew unclean. And if you've read the Old Testament about what it takes for a Jew, once unclean, to become clean again, it's quite a process. But Peter says to Cornelius, this is in verse 28, You yourself know how unlawful it is for a Jew to to associate or to visit anyone. And yet there he is in the home of a Gentile. And there are more clues, too. When we meet Cornelius in, in, in Caesarea, right off the bat, we're told that he is a devout man. He is one who feared God, not just him, but his entire household. He's, um, he's one who gave generously. He's given alms to the poor. He's prayed continually to God. But what is so interesting is that the first thing that the angel has to say to Cornelius is, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, this is a new thing. This is a brand new thing. You see, the, the Jews, of course, had access to the inner court. Uh, that's where they brought their sacrifices. That's where they brought incense to be to be uh, uh, taken to the altar of the incense. So this burning smell you see from their offering from the, 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 the animals that they brought, wafts into the air. And this is supposed to be a, an incredible symbol, you see, of the sweet aroma of the people of God's worship to a holy God. And the angel here is saying to Cornelius, I know you don't make a smell. I know you're in the court of the Gentiles. I know that all you have are, are alms that you give to the poor and your prayers. But you know what? That has all wafted up toward God. He's taken notice of you. Cornelius, God, is recognizing you and in doing so, God is giving you a vision for something that you don't yet have but which is for you. A mystery today, Cornelius, is being revealed and it's the redemption of the people of God and that redemption now includes the Gentiles. Cornelius, it's meant for you too. This morning I'm I'm, I'm calling this sort of the conversion vision that Cornelius has because this chapter is such a hinge point between epics in redemptive history, but also it's an outline for us about how we can have this vision, about how people here today in this room who have not yet been converted can have the vision that Cornelius has and see Christ. I want you to think of it this way. Seeing Something that you haven't seen before. An answer to some kind of mystery is often complicated and frustrating and exciting all at the same time. It's complicated and frustrating because we wonder why often we didn't see it before. Reading a mystery novel as you as you get to the end, why we thought the clues perhaps pointed in one direction, we get kind of frustrated when, a, when they point, we didn't add up right, the clues, and they point yet in a different direction. Or we get we get kind of frustrated by the process. It's just so hard to grasp because if it wasn't, well, it wouldn't be a mystery. We would have seen it all along. There is a, uh, a video on the Internet that has uh, gone viral over the last year. It's about a, a, a man named William Reed. He's the person in the video. And uh, William Reed is a 66-year-old bodybuilder. He's a very big guy. Who has lived his entire life in black and white. He has been colorblind from birth. And in the video, the family for his birthday has given him a very expensive pair of Enchroma glasses that help you, help the colorblind person. It has something to do with the way the brain processes the colors of red and green. You wouldn't even notice Cliff's hair if you were colorblind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and so, so here he comes, he comes out of his house and the whole family is gathered there. They've all got their phone, their videos, you know, and and, and he comes out and, and, and you see the frustration on his face right away because he, he puts these glasses on for the first time and he, something's not right, you know, and he puts them on and he takes them off and he puts them on, he takes them off and then suddenly he gets this weird sort of creepy grin on his face and then the tears come down. Because this is it. This is the thing that I have been told for years that I need to see and I cannot see, this thing called color. And, and 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 his eyes that only saw black and white are suddenly converted into eyes through the gift of these new lenses that he can now see a reality that was always there but that he simply could not see before. So with the rest of our time, let's just talk about how this conversion vision of seeing an even greater reality, the giver of color, the giver of all things, how you can have that and see that, see how Cornelius and Peter get it and how it's given to you. So we're just going to look at three things this morning. The conversion vision is given by God. He's the one that gives it. The conversion vision is by grace, not by works. And finally, conversion vision is by the Holy Spirit. Those are the three things we'll look at. So conversion vision is given by God. Uh, Cornelius was a centurion. The the name is what it sounds like. You think of a cent being one one hundredth of a dollar or a century being a hundred years. Well, a centurion is a leader over, a commander over a hundred men in the Roman army. But, uh, uh, we find out through the passage that Cornelius is sort of a graduate level centurion. He is of this elite guard called the Italian cohort. We're familiar with things like uh, in the army, a uh, Delta force or uh, army Rangers, Navy, the Navy seals. Uh, Cornelius is like that in this elite force in the military. Now, that we're even talking about a guy like this tells you that the doors this are starting to open the hinge is swinging open. Uh Pastor Sean and I have reminded you that the book of Acts follows basically the outline of the great commission that Jesus gives the disciples at the end of the book of Acts and you've heard us say this that the that that charge to preach the gospel first to Jerusalem then to Judea, then Samaria, and finally the uttermost parts of the earth. But as we go through this, we start to meet four different people groups, if you will, as we go through. First, of course, we meet the Jews. They're in the upper room, the followers of Jesus in particular. Then we meet the Samaritans along the way. Today we're meeting the Gentiles, but we're also meeting a certain kind of Gentile today. That is, we're meeting the God-fearers, the God-fearers, that last group. Now, the God-fearers were those Gentiles, usually Greek-speaking Gentiles, who had converted to Judaism in every respect except one. They did not subject themselves to circumcision. Now, that is not the mystery in the text. That is no mystery at all. It is one thing to submit yourself to circumcision as an infant, Whole other process as, a, as an adult. So these god you see, were very satisfied to be out in the court of the Gentiles. Uh, they, they had taken their vows. They had practiced the law. They were practicing Judaism in every way except for this one. And you see, it's those vows that gave them the name the god because even though they were Gentiles, they did not worship the gods and the goddesses of Rome. They, they, they did not uh, 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 worship the, the the Greek pantheon of deities. No, they believed in the God Most High. They were faithful followers of Yahweh, the God of Israel. So that Cornelius is this interesting person. He is not a Christian. He knows nothing of Jesus as Lord and Savior at this point. And he's not a Jew but he is found, he is recognized by God at the same time. Not a Christian, not a Jew, but his prayers are recognized by God. God sends his messenger, the angel, to Cornelius. So God, you see, is the one, he is the one who is opening up the door to a new event, a new reality in redemptive history so that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile is effectively coming down. Now, as Tim Keller says about this passage, the principle is not, if you're going to be converted, you have to have a vision. It's not necessary. Remember a couple of weeks ago with the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, he, uh, he has a conversion. He goes right down to the water. He's then baptized. No vision. Right? Uh, Lydia, who's converted, will see does not get a vision. What we do see in all conversions and all places and all times is that at some point the converted person realizes that their search for God was not a result of their searching for God but as a result of God's first searching for them. God has searched out Cornelius not as a result of his searching for God but because God was searching for him. And this is how it always goes. You might not see it that way right away if you're in the midst of that process now or if uh, recently you are, but there will come a time when eventually every person looks back and says, I thought I was searching. I thought that I was moving toward God. I thought I was first searching him out, but now I realize he had first searched me out. He found me. My wife has uh, been reading uh, C.S. Lewis's autobiography recently. He speaks there about his own conversion, and Lewis says, Amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, they might as well have spoken about the mouse's search for the cat. Right? In other words, no one really searches for the God who is actually there. Because the the, the change that we want, the answer to the mystery that we desire, the, the answer to all of our problems, the love that we have never had, isn't one that we would ever choose until he first chooses us. The, the God, in other words, that we would choose, the one that is a creation of our own heart and our own desires, is not actually the God who is there, but, but almost a fantasy. One, the, the God that we would like him, her to be for us, you see. It's a projection of our own heart. And it turns out that when we're searching for that God, then we miss the one who's actually there. Now, that may not sound like good news to you, especially if you're in the process of, you're here today perhaps, to search for God yourselves. But I want to tell you that it absolutely is good news. It absolutely is good news. I've had people come up to me as a pastor and say, say, say to me, I'm afraid I'm going to miss God. You know, I'm searching for God and, and yet maybe because there's something about me, something about my vision, something about my history, something about the life that I, 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 I lived. I think that my search for God, I'm, I'm not going to get him. Other people are getting him. I see that, but I'm just not getting it. And, and you know, I, I don't say it this way, but in the back of my head, what I'm thinking is, you know, the reason that you're missing the God that you think that you're searching is you're giving yourself too much credit. You're giving yourself too much credit. You're not capable, you see, of missing God. You're not capable of longing for God because our status is we're dead in sin and transgression and dead people can't raise themselves to newness of life like Peter did with Dorcas the the, the week before through the power of Jesus. God had to do that. God had to do that. He's got to create that longing. One Christian apologist put it this way. He says, A sense of God's absence is the sign of his presence. See what he means? A sign of God's absence is the sign of his presence because you're not capable of a feeling of his absence. You're not really capable of missing him. A sense of his absence is a sign of his presence and that's the good news. So if you're feeling like you're missing, God is on the move. God is working. Because the first thing we learn is the first mark of real Christian conversion, real life change, real spiritual transformation, is conversion comes through God's initiative. He's the one that delivers it. Second, conversion is by grace, not by works. By grace... Not by works. Now, if you have questions about the law, that's going to come up next week when we kind of fill out the middle of the donut hole and we start to talk about Peter's vision, a vision that, that it's interesting. God has to explain to Peter three times so that he gets it. So confusing is it to Peter in terms of, of, of the law. But conversion, even here in our passage, comes by grace, not by works. And this is so interesting because the first thing that we learn about Cornelius is he's a good God. He's more than a good guy. He's a devout man. He's described as one who fears God. Again, that's a sign of God certainly working in him. But the question is, is that enough? Is that enough? Is the fact that he is a good and devout man, is the fact that he is generous or even that he prays continually, is that enough? Think of it this way. When the angel uh, comes to Cornelius, uh, does the angel say, Cornelius, we've, you know, we've been all, we've been up in heaven. We've been watching your life on the heavenly monitor bank that we have up there. And, and we have seen, you are a pretty great guy. You're one of the best. You're a great and very powerful man. You're wealthy, but you still give to the poor. You have this high position, but hey, you, it, you haven't let it go to your head. And so you're a pretty awesome guy and you pray, you're a man of virtue, therefore you're in. Is that what the angel says? Or how about this? Cornelius, because you're just so good, we want to know that if you could just keep it up a little bit longer, right? if you can keep it up until the day of your death, No doubt about it. We see that you're going to be in if you can just keep it up. Now, in a sense, that's what you think because isn't that what religion is all about? Isn't that what religion is all about? Uh, uh, Work harder, try harder, and good things will happen. Isn't that why we say, I'm a good person? Because we're kind of doing the math and there's sort of a formula there. I'm a good person... The variable in the equation is assuming there's a good God who likewise can see that I am a good person which will mean I'm saved. That when I get to heaven my works, that I'm good plus God being good and seeing those works equals God saying you're in. And isn't that the message of all religion? But that is not what happens here. That is not what happens here. Think about this. The very same thing happened to a guy named Nicodemus. Remember him? John chapter 3. And he was a good guy. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And when I say Pharisee today, I don't want you to think of sort of the caricature of the nasty, lorded over others, always prideful. I'm better than you are, Pharisee. But as Pharisees go, he's one of the really good ones. He came to Jesus. He recognized him as a teacher. He saw the miracles that Jesus did. And he says, you know, no one can look at the signs that you do and somehow say that you're not from God. You are so obviously from God. What does Jesus say to him? You're in? He says, you must be born again to a good God. You must be born again. Someone who recognizes that Jesus is from God. You know what? This is not a retool. This is not a makeover. This is a do-over. You need to be born again. You need to be born again. We have to start over with you because that's how conversion works and that's actually how, how it feels. Ask somebody in this room who's been converted and they will tell you that it wasn't like I was just a good person and God just had to give me a little bit of polish. That, that I had done so well, I just needed that little Jesus as a life coach and he just put me over the top. That is not how it works. That is not how it feels. That is not the experience that you have. You know, some people think, I get why that guy needs Jesus. Some people say, I can... Get in her case why she might want a relationship with Jesus. And they're thinking themselves because born again conversions are for people whose maybe their lives are a wreck. Or maybe they're in a messy place in life. Or they're just so good, you see, that they just want to be a little bit better. But it's not for people like me. Maybe they need that kind of cathartic experience. But you see, somebody like me, I've got it all together or I'm just so bad that no one would want to save me. So I'm in the special category of the unsavable. But that is not how it works. Let me tell you that Cornelius had it all together. Nicodemus had it all together. In, in, a, in a verse or two here, we see that Cornelius, he had uh, two servants just two of his servants he had more than that that he sent to peter he had a devout soldier from among those who attended him wouldn't that be great if you don't have it all together with a you a guy like that you got all these people to help you keep it together he had it all he had status in the culture he had power he had strength he was of an elite force in rome and what the angel tells him to do is to wait so that he can hear the gospel and be converted. Friends, this is how Christianity works. We think that Christianity is either for total messes, the person who can't fix their lives on their own, or it's for people who are really moral, really, really good people. But instead, God calls to, God's call to conversion breaks down those ideas and says it's not about the rules you didn't keep, and it's not about the rules you do keep. It's not about what's keeping you out is not all the rules that you broke, and what's getting you in is not all the damnable good works that you've actually done that are not not enough. It's not about you at all. It's about grace. It's about what God has done on your behalf. That's what Christianity is about. So conversion vision is given by God and conversion vision is by grace, not by works. Lastly, the conversion vision is by the Spirit. Meaning that your conversion is not a matter of your own will. It's not a matter of your turning over a new leaf or some program. Many of us in this room, I know, have, you know, when we've wanted life change, we've tried some new program, we've tried some new diet, we've tried, you know, following some well-known teacher in the culture, some kind of life coach or whatever it might be, to be converted to a new place in our lives where we're a better version of ourselves. But that's not how it comes. Conversion is spiritual transformation by the Spirit. Now you start to see this immediately because I think when Peter arrives at Cornelius' house, both guys are totally freaked out. I don't know if you that like it came to you in the um, in, in the text here. Uh, Cornelius in verse 25 is totally freaked out. And you almost imagine that the, the Peter and Cornelius are in this space where they just both know we're not supposed to be here. Um, when I was a kid, I was the middle child, so, uh, when we went on car rides, you know, I'm the guy that sat in the middle of the back seat, you know, because my younger brother, he got the good spot and my older sister was bigger than I was. So I, I got the middle and, and the same, we didn't, we didn't have, uh, we didn't have, you know, our toys were rather archaic back then. <clears throat> we didn't have phones and DVD players and minivans and stuff like that. So what we had to do is we actually had to stop at uh, rest stops and we'd put quarters in a machine and we'd pull that little lever out. And these little toys came out in these little packages. And I got to tell you, I was always the kid that got stuck with the, um, the the black and the white dog. Do you know what I'm talking about? These two magnets, right? And, uh, and uh, they stick to everything in the car, but they don't stick to each other because the magnets repel each other, right? That's Peter, that's Cornelius in this room we shouldn't be here right now, right? First thing, What's the first thing Cornelius does? He falls to the ground and worships. Like, I can't be in your presence, right? Because the guy that comes after the guy that comes to you as an angel, well, the guy that follows the angel must be the guy, right? So he's like, this must be the guy, this must be God, you know? And Peter says, no, you've got to stand up here. But Peter, likewise, he's freaking out too. Verse 34 and verse 28, you know, he makes it really clear. I'm I'm coming into your house. I don't belong here. I'm coming into your house. I'm stepping in here right now. This is an unlawful thing for me to do. And then more clues when Peter then actually speaks, the text tells us in verse 34 that he opens his mouth. Uh, Daryl Box says, you almost get the the one commentator says, you almost get a sense that this is involuntary, right? That this is an expression with biblical roots. When Jesus gave the Beatitudes, he opened his mouth, the text says, to speak God's word. Uh, We saw this earlier in uh, Acts chapter 8 when Philip, and you wonder, how could this guy Philip, he's a brand new Christian, how could he give such an awesome service? Uh, Philip opened his mouth, right? And the Spirit spoke through him. In other words, new theological insights are coming, even for Peter, and he can't believe that he's seeing what he's seeing. And here's the gospel message, a big part of the gospel message he's giving. This has never been heard before. God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. And Cornelius, he's standing there, not as the commander that he is to give orders, but he tells people, this is another clue, that we are all assembled here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord to give us. I'm a commander, but today I need to be commanded. Command me. Tell me, tell me everything. He says, tell me all that you have to tell us. And he's gathered his family there. He's gathered his friends there. And he's basically saying, don't give me the Episcopalian nine minute version. I want the Presbyterian whole thing. I want it all. Yeah. You know? <clears throat> Do you remember being hungry like that when you wanted to hear everything God had to tell you because God had been doing work in your heart and suddenly this is everything for you to, to, you've been thirsting for and, and your life is new and you've been being remade and you want to taste it and you want to taste it some more. Okay, so you say that's good, but if you're going to give us the Presbyterian version, I can't wait to hear what the Presbyterian minister is going to say about verse 46. Speaking in tongues. So this is the day that we're going to talk about this. Speaking in tongues and praising God are two marks of spiritual conversion. They're not exactly the same, but they're two marks. Now, praising God is a mark of, and I'm going to use a cultural word here, psychological conversion psychological transformation that the spirit brings to us. Speaking in tongues is a mark of a sociological transformation that again, a cultural word, but that the spirit brings as well. Now the easier one of course to talk about is the sort of the psychological transformation. How do these people know these people who gathered at the invitation of Cornelius in his house, his friends, his his relatives, how do they know they've been converted? How do they know they've been born again? Well, for the first time, they are praising the one true God who is there. Verse 46, they were extolling God. How do they know they were extolling the true God? Because they just heard the gospel. They just heard that, that they were included, that all humanity is included, that Peter, there's no partiality, Peter is saved by grace. He needs the forgiveness of sins. And Cornelius, is is he needs grace. He needs to be forgiveness of sins. And, and I need to be forgiven of sins. And you need to be forgiven of sins. All of us, whatever tribe, nation, tongue we're from in this room, we need the forgiveness of sins. And the one to do it is Jesus. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's how they... And they were extolling God for doing this. You see? Now, think about what Peter could have done in, 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 in his sermon there. It's kind of an interesting sermon that Peter gives because it's, a, it's, it's stuff that you know in some sense. But Peter had one of the best testimonies anybody could ever have. Second, maybe only to Paul's, right? Peter, Peter could say, I knew Jesus. I followed Jesus. I loved Jesus. I betrayed Jesus. And then Jesus, small j, j changed my capital M life. That's what Peter could have presented to the people. But Peter does not give his testimony. He preaches Christ. He preaches Jesus with a capital J. One takeaway from this, brothers and sisters, is that when we share our our faith, don't share your story, share his story for the person that you're speaking to. When you share your faith, don't talk about yourself, but Christ, because he's the object of, of our worship. It's He that we extol when we come to faith. So worship Him. Now, what's the big deal about that? The big deal is that in the Bible, worship is defined as ascribing value to something. Worship is described as as giving ultimate worth to something. That's what worship is. Not just that you like it, but that you adore it that you cherish it, that you that you hold what it is you want in a tight fist so that you will never let it go such that if I could rip it out of your hands, you would say my life is over. Every heart in this room cherishes something. To be a non-Christian does not mean that you don't worship. It just means that you don't worship the God who is there. It means that you don't worship the Creator, but you worship things that are created, but we all worship. And so that whatever it is, you see, that's your spiritual oxygen. It's your emotional oxygen. Whatever it is that without it, life would be unbearable, that's what you worship. And if you can't quite get to it, even psychotherapists will tell you this, that the things around which we order our lives are things of power, approval, comfort, and control. That's the place to go to find out, what is. what do I really worship? Does it make me feel more powerful? Does it make me feel like I have approval, that I'm accepted? Does it give me comfort, or does it give me control? Those are the buckets that the things that we worship tend to be in. So that when the Holy Spirit changes you psychologically, it changes you because it changes what it is that you worship. And so until your heart's fundamental worship is changed, you haven't been changed. And until the focus of your life is around Christ and him crucified, you have not yet been converted. And some of us who have been converted are always looking at other things to worship and we struggle. We call that repentance and turning back to the thing around which our life is ordered. But if we are not worshipers of Christ, we haven't been converted. So what about the sociological transformation. Speaking in tongues. I'm going to cheat here. Um, In chapter 11, Peter reflects on this passage. We didn't read it this morning. But in chapter 11, Peter reflects on, in verse 15, what is happening here. And he says, The Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us in the beginning. What's he talking about? Pentecost. Pentecost, right? There are a bunch of places in Acts where people are converted and there are no tongues, but there was a time when there were. Right? So that when the Ethiopian eunuch was, was converted, there were no tongues. When Lydia Was converted. When Lydia's household was converted, there were no tongues. I could list many more. And there are a number of times when the Holy Spirit came down, it came down on Paul, as you'll remember, and at that time he didn't speak any tongues. But here people are. And Peter now seems to get it. This is epic changing. This is just like At Pentecost. What did we learn at Pentecost? Fulfillment. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. And Peter is saying, I know what's happening again. There's more promise and fulfillment going on. And so we seem to see these tongues when the gospel goes out of Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria. And we're going to see them again later in the book of Acts when they start to go to what is in those days the outermost parts of the earth. If I were to stand in front of you with a spirit of prophecy, in my own words, and, and tell you something like, I had a new teaching, I think that you, in this congregation, should be very suspicious of the next thing that comes out of my mouth. Because we have been given God's word. We don't need more word. You don't need more word from me that's not in here. We have not exhausted what's in this book yet. However, when it, when, it, when a missionary comes to this pulpit, and you've heard this sometimes, and says some very interesting things, things that seem supernatural, things that just you and I haven't seen, but they're coming from the outermost parts of the earth, I take that seriously, because the spirit is coming down on, on, on a group of people, and you know what that spirit's telling those people? Nothing keeps you out. There is no partiality. You think the gospel maybe is for people in the West or the Far East, and but, but, but I'm too far North or I'm too far South or my language is, nobody translates anything into my language. No, the gospel is for you. God shows no partiality such that, 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 that at, at, at Pentecost you had Parthians and Medes, remember, and Elamites, and we had residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, and the gospel was spreading out, and the Spirit came down. And now we have the Spirit falling in front of Peter's eyes on a pagan. Yes, a god fear but he's outside the covenant and the Spirit's given to him and his household and his friends and his family that there's only one culture um, and, and, and that's the culture of Christ, that, that no other culture is more appropriate for the gospel than another culture, that racial superiority is over with. It's dead. Cultural superiority is done. It's over. The Holy Spirit's job is to come into each and every culture and recreate Christianity, rebirth people into a new people, the body of Christ in the culture. No culture has a leg up on any other. So the Peter's freak out, if you will, is that it was drilled into him as a Jew that he would never walk into a Gentile's house and have bacon with a Gentile. And here I am. <laughs> he can barely believe it. This means, this means for us, that everybody in this room is equally a sinner. Sinner. But in Jesus Christ, everyone in this room is equally loved. The question isn't where you're from or what language you speak or who you are or how bad a person you are or how good a person you are. The question is, are you in Christ? The question is, have you received what God has given? If you're here today, like Cornelius, God has recognized you will you now receive the grace that he gives by the power of the Holy Spirit? And if you are in Christ, if you are a Christ follower, are you then walking by the power of the Spirit? It's easy in this world to get distracted, isn't it? Peter, again, we'll see it next week, he has a vision that all these foods are clean and there are no divisions, the dividing walls come down, but the law keeps seeping into his heart and distracting him, he has to be told again. He's told again, and the law then seeps into his heart and convicts him that I should not believe this, I should not trust it. He has to be told again. That happens to us too. Jesus Christ comes into your heart and says, The law of who you think you are or the law of who the world says you must be rules you and that's distracting you and it's taking up this enormous place in your heart. Will you turn it over? Will you confess? Will you repent? And will you receive from God, you are mine and I will never let you go. Because that's who you are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, may we be living in the new reality, this new world. Lord, our, our hearts are dull often. They're dim. Uh, we still struggle against prevailing sin. It's a fallen world. Uh, there are things in this world that are unclean. Uh, Lord, for those of us who are here today that need to be converted, that need to have those lenses in, that need to be shaken up, to they need to see reality for the first time. Lord, give them that new birth in the power of your Spirit, we ask right now. Father, for those of us who walk by the Spirit, may we also maintain those lenses ourselves. Some of us see as though we're not thoroughly yet converted. All of us see that we're not thoroughly converted. We pray because we spent this time today that you would show us that what we should do about that in following Christ all the more, whether it's in a small group or or getting back into the Word or being accountable or repenting to a brother and sister. Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.